0: right open your Bibles to Psalm 99. Psalm 99. This psalm is a praise to the Lord for his holiness. Now this is the last of what was called or what is called the Royal Psalms that started with Psalm 93. And it praises God as the king of his people. And this psalm has three sections. And each one ends with the words. He is holy. First there's praise to the Lord. In the greatness of his glory. In verses 1 through 3. Second praise to the king. In the justice of his rule. In verses 4 through 5. And then third there's praise to the king. Who answers the prayers of his people. In verses 6 through 9. Now the psalm, the psalmist encouraged everyone to exalt the Lord with praise for two reasons. First of all, because He is holy. Our God is holy. Second, because He mercifully answers His people's prayers. And it's important to understand, it's His people's prayers that He answers. The theme of this psalm is praise for God's fairness and holiness. And that's because God is perfectly just and fair. He is is impartial. There's no partiality with God. He can't be bribed. He's no respecter of persons. He's true and he's honest. We can totally trust him. The author, we don't know. It's unknown. Psalm 99 is about the holiness of God. That is such a deep, deep subject. The holiness of God. It's also about his kingly reign. And it starts with the words, the Lord reigns here in verse 1. Also in Psalm 93 and 97, two more of the royal psalms, it begins with the Lord reigns. But the psalm is mostly about God's holiness. And which is important to understand if we're going to appreciate the character of this supreme and reigning king. God's holiness is mentioned three times in this psalm. In verse 3, verse 5, and verse 9. The holiness is an attribute of God. It, it, it's His character. It's who He is. The Bible calls God holy more than it calls Him anything else. It calls Him more. It calls Him holy more than it calls Him sovereign, more than it calls Him just, and more than it calls Him merciful or loving. But just what is holy? And I'm sure that everybody would have a, a different defin- definition and. Uh, but holy is moral and ethical wholeness or perfection. It's freedom from moral evil. And our Lord, he, he is perfectly, again, he's, he, he's perfectly moral and ethical. There's, there, there's no evil in him. He can't be tempted with evil. He doesn't create evil. Uh, he doesn't bring about evil. Holiness is one of the principal elements of God's nat- uh, nature required of his people in other words we read uh, uh, s- several times in the scriptures i am holy therefore you be holy all right we are to reflect the father's character if we claim to be his children then we are to reflect his character holiness may also be translated sanctification or godliness the word the word holy denotes that which is sanctified or set apart for divine service. You and I have been sanctified, which means set apart for God only. God instructed Moses in Exodus 29, 9 to consecrate Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. The children of Israel were admonished to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Exodus 20, verse 8. The holy of holies. Or the holiest of all was the most sacred place in the the desert tabernacle and in the tabernacle at Jerusalem. Elisha was called a holy man of God. Herod feared John the Baptist because he was a just and holy man. Mark 6.20 Now, while the word holy is sometimes used in a ceremonial sense, the main use is to describe God's righteous nature or the ethical righteousness demanded of his followers. We are demanded to be holy. Originating, and the holiness originated in God. It originates in God's nature. It's who he is. Holiness is a unique quality of his character. And the Bible emphasizes this divine attribute. Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord? Of course, the answer is none. There's no one like him. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. And then in Revelation 15.4, who shall not fear you, O Lord, for you alone, notice the key word alone, you alone are holy. God's high expectations of his people flow out of his holy nature. Exodus 19.6 says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Leviticus 20, verse 7 says, Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now, Jesus was the very incarnation of holiness. He was the embodiment of holiness. He was holiness in the flesh. He reinforced God's demands for holiness by insisting that his disciples might have a higher quality of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he told the disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will no way inherit the kingdom of God. And and they must have been shocked when they heard Jesus say that because the scribes and the Pharisees they were the cream of the crop when it came to the religious. They didn't come any more religious. Like the prophets Amos and Hosea, Jesus called for more than a ceremonial holiness. In other words, he called for more than just being, uh, uh, just going through the motions and, and the ceremonies and the rituals and the rites. He called for a, 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 a heartfelt uh, uh, holiness, a true holiness from the inside. Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The subject of sanctification Or growing into God's likeness and being consecrated for his use is well known all through the Bible. And like Jesus, the apostles taught that sanctification or true holiness expressed itself in patient and loving service while waiting for the Lord's return. Paul urged the suffering Christians of the Roman Empire to follow God's example of holiness in their trials. Peter said in 1st 1 Peter 1:15, 1 "As he who has called you is holy, notice, you also be holy in all your conduct." You know, it's important to understand the importance of holiness in our life. Because 1st 1 Peter 1:15, 1 you know, it, again it says, "He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Hebrews 12:14 says, "Without holiness nobody's going to see the Lord." Our salvation hinges upon holiness. And that is not a popular topic today. And it's not taught very much today. Happiness has replaced holiness. In other words, as if God cares more about your happiness than holiness. He doesn't. Believe it or not, when you are walking with God and you are living holy before God, that's when you'll truly be happy. Again, God is concerned more about holiness than he is my happiness. Paul's prayer for the Christians at Thessalonica is timeless. It was just as, as pertinent then as it is now in its application to the church and individual believers. Listen to what Paul said. First Thessalonians three twelve through 13. And may the Lord make you increase in love and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Christ with all of his saints. And the word holy is the the only description of God that's repeated three times for emphasis in, in this way. Holy, holy, holy. We see it in Isaiah 6, 4. We see it in Revelation 4, 8. Now, the way people in those days expressed their emphasis was by repetition. Jesus did it when he started off many of his sayings by truly, truly. Then he would say, I say to you. It was a way of getting special attention to what he was going to say next. So, if saying something twice means it's important, how much more important would it be if it said three times? Like the word holiness is. Obviously, this makes it especially important. Now, in reading the Bible, you find out that that, that only God is holy. We saw that a minute ago. Only you, you alone are holy, Lord. Revelation 15:4 says, "Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy." God is said to be glorious in his holiness. Exodus 15:11, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness?" The holy attribute of God, that holy characteristic of God, that holy quality of God is observed before his throne day and night by the seraphim. Isaiah could hear that seraphim, <clears throat> a certain type of angel saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, 3. Also in Revelation 4, 8. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The cherubim are mighty angels that make up one of several ranks of angels. And one of the roles of angels is to watch over believers. And there are examples of guardian angels in the Bible. But there's nothing to say that each believer, alright, there's nothing to say that each believer has their own angel assigned to them. But children, on the other hand, they just might have their own individual angel based on what Jesus said in Matthew 18:10. Jesus said, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Angels can also be God's messengers. Now, we can't see angels. They're They're not visible to us, except on special occasions. But it's comforting to know that God watches over us even when we're stressed out and afraid. The angels praise the holy God. And God's people are called on to join in these praises. And here in verse 3, it says, Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. So with that little bit of a background, let's begin now with Psalm 99, beginning with verses 1 through 3. And the psalmist writes, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion and He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. He is holy. And if you remember when I started way back, I, I mentioned underlining every time you saw the word name, speaking of God's character and reputation. So, you know, again, I hope you're, you're keeping up with that because you'll be blown away. When you read through the whole Bible too, it's Genesis to Revelation. Every time you see the, His name, pertaining to God, you know, underline it. and You'll see how many times his name is mentioned, speaking of his holiness, his character, and his reputation. So verses 1 through 3 speaks of his holiness in power. God is holy in power. And the purpose of verses 1 through 3 is to stress to the worshiper God's awesome holiness. And the psalmist starts out by giving us a picture of the Lord sitting on his throne in heaven. Just like an earthly king might receive visitors to his court while he was sitting on an earthly throne, but it's not an ordinary throne room. It's not an ordinary throne. This is heavenly Zion, and God is not sitting. Uh, and God is not sitting between some brass ornaments or other embellishments, but He's sitting between the impressive figures of these cherubim, and in front of this, holy, holy, holy. God the peoples or the nations might well tremble and the earth be moved or shaken. Everybody, everyone should praise God's great and awesome name. Why? Because as I said a minute ago, His name points to His divine nature. It points to His person. It points to His reputation. It represents everything that God is. But God's name today it is awesome often used so carelessly in our conversation. It's used flippantly and to the point where we've lost sight of its holiness. And we take it for granted. The Jews wouldn't even pronounce his name because it was so holy to them. It's so easy to speak flippantly of God today and to treat God lightly in everyday life. If you say he's your father... We should live worthy of our family name, respecting his name, praising his name and him with our words and with our life. Verse 3, the psalmist says, Your great and awesome name. Notice that, your great and awesome name. The name of God is a blessing and a comfort, and it suggests awe and wonder. He is holy. And holy means to be distinct or distinct from. And this is the main Hebrew word used to describe the superiority of God. Now, verses 4 through 5. The second section here. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob, which is another word for Israel, another term for Israel. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. So here in verses four through five, he is holy in justice. That is in his fairness, his righteousness. Another part of God's holiness is his moral decency or righteousness, especially in his righteous rule over his people and over the nations. The psalmist says in verse four, he loves justice and has established equity. And he's always done what's just and he's always done what's right. And he always will. He'll always be just. He'll always be right. Now, God's holiness is very frightening to sinners or frightening for sinners, and it should be. But it's a great comfort for believers. God is morally perfect. He's set apart from people and he's set apart from sin. He has no weaknesses. He has no faults. Again, this is scary for sinners because of all of their faults and evil. They're exposed by the light of God's holiness. And you can't hide it from God. And God can't tolerate or ignore or excuse sin. It will be exposed and it will be dealt with. It will be judged. But for believers, God's holiness, hey, it gives us comfort. Why? Because we worship him. As we worship him, he comforts us. We're lifted out of the slime pit of sin, and we believe in Him, and we're made holy. So because of that, the psalmist says here, notice, Exalt the Lord our God and worship Him at His footstool. Now, the footstool of the Lord is sometimes said to be the earth. We see that in Isaiah 66.1. But more specifically, Zion is the Lord's footstool. Psalm 32.7 and Isaiah 60.13. When the Israelites came to the temple in Jerusalem to worship They pictured themselves as being at the feet of the creator. If the psalmist was talking about an earthly king and an earthly throne, his footstool would suggest the platform or the king's throne that it sits on. But this is a divine king and it's a divine throne. So God's footstool here could be many things. It could be the earth, like in Isaiah 66, 1. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Or it could be Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. Isaiah 60, 13 says, The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So what could be meant here, all right, is the Ark of the Covenant. A box about three feet long and about 18 inches wide and 18 inches deep. And the Ark of the Covenant was covered with gold. It had a lid called the mercy seat. And on both ends were figures of cherubim, these angels that were facing outward and their wings were facing over the top of that lid, the mercy seat of the Ark and the Covenant. And again, uh, it was understood that God dwelled or dwelt between their wings. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of stone that the Ten Commandments were written on, which is the law of God, again, the word of God. All of these features fit the psalm, especially since the ark was an earthly picture of the heavenly scene where God was understood to be enthroned between the cherubim, sitting between the cherubim. In First Chronicles 28, 2, David refers to the ark of the covenant as God's footstool. Listen to what David said. Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So the Ark of the Covenant, this footstool, as David called it, it was terrifying. And it was an awe-inspiring part of the religious experience of Israel. And it was kept in the most holy place of the temple. And the only one who could ever go near it was the high priest. And that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And only, only after first having offered a sacrifice for himself. And the people in the courtyard next to it. If anybody, even including the high priest. If anyone tried to get anywhere near the Ark of the Covenant. Other than the way God prescribed it to be approached. It would be instant death. No matter who it was. For whoever it was that violated God's holiness. You see, we can only come to God a certain way. In the Old Testament, God made that very clear to the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, once a year. After he made a sacrifice for himself. Today in the New Testament. We can only approach God through Jesus Christ. Through him and him only. There is no other way. Jesus said I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Why is he the only way? Because he eliminated every other way. By dying on the cross and resurrecting. No other religious leader or prophet. or Whoever claims to be somebody. Ever resurrected from the dead. Only one. Jesus Christ. Therefore, he has the right to say, I am the way. We need to understand that. We need to know that. And we need to let people know that when they say to us, well, that's pretty narrow. There's a lot of religious leaders, a lot of good. It wasn't about good. It was about holiness. There was only one that was sinless in this life, and that was Jesus Christ. He was the perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. So it's not about being good. It's not about being religious. It's about being sinless. The perfect sacrifice. And there was only one. And that was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, if you tried approaching the Old Testament, uh, I mean, the, the Ark of the Covenant, other than the prescribed way, it would be death to anyone. Remember how, that's how Nadab and Abihu died. Remember? They were judged for doing this. They came to worship God, but they came with what the Bible said, strange fire. God didn't call for it. It wasn't the prescribed way. In other words, they came, Nadab and Abihu came to, and they approached God in their own way. And they died instantly. It was something God didn't describe, uh, prescribe. But at the same time, the Ark of the Covenant was also a picture of God's Mercy. Because, you see, on the mercy seat, the high priest was able to make atonement for the people's sins. And how did he do that? By sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the covering or on the seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which meant the blood. All right. The blood indicated that something died. There was a death. There was a sacrifice. There was a victim. That now came between the presence of the holy God who was understood to dwell between the wings of the cherubim and the law that was inside the ark, which all of us have broken. You see, this is the only way that we can come near God to worship him through that shed blood on the the cross. We worship at his footstool because it's only the basis of, of, of the shed blood pointing to the shed blood of Christ on Calvary that we can come near the Holy God. Have you come that way? Have you come to God that way? If you haven't come through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning death, that is his shed blood for your sins, you haven't really come to God at all. And you know what? In the end, you will be sent away from God into outer darkness on that last day. A lot of people think, oh, you know, as long as I do this and I do that, or I, I'm fine and I'm, I'm good and, you know, I'm going to make it to heaven. You know, they're, 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 they're trying to approach God in their own way. And if you've talked yourself into believing that you're going to heaven in your own way, please understand, don't wait to find out that you are dead wrong. It's only through Jesus Christ. The only acceptable sacrifice to the Father. Verses six through seven. Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those notice, who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord knows and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Here's this third section. It shows that God is holy in his mercy. Mercy. God is holy in his mercy. The psalmist now mentions three of Israel's past leaders here. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. He also speaks about the wilderness experience of the people when God spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. And the reason for what seems like an unexpected change of subject here is that is from heaven to the earthly is to remind us that worshiping the high and holy God, it's not just for angels. Even though angels worship him, but it's for us too. It's for human beings as well, like us. We're the ones who are being called to to exalt the Lord our God here and to worship at His footstool in verse 5. Our worship is at at His holy hill, according to verse 9. And if we come to God on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus, as God requires, we'll find out two things. First, God answers prayer. God answers prayer. If we come to God on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, as God requires, we will realize, we will learn that God answers prayer. Verse six says, Moses, Aaron and Samuel called upon the Lord and he answered them. The second thing we'll find out is that God forgives our sins. God forgives our sins. Look at verse eight. You answered them, O Lord our God. Notice, you were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. So again, you learn that God answers prayer and that God forgives our sins. But, he says, you were to them, uh, them being, Israel, is God who forgives, even though you took vengeance on their deeds. Now notice, he forgave them of their sin, but he still allowed vengeance upon what they did. Understand, and from this morning, we should remember, vengeance is not revenge. It's important to understand that vengeance is not revenge. God isn't taking revenge on them for their sins. In other words, he's allowing the consequences to go forward, even though he he forgave them of their sins. Now, and I've heard many times, you know, over the years in ministry, how, you know, a person is, is, you know, they're, they're suffering the consequences of their sin. And then they'll say, Pastor Joe, you know, you know, I I, I asked for forgiveness of my sins. I forget, you know, I I confessed my sin and I asked for Why am I still going through all these difficulties? Well, understand, God forgave you of your sins. But you know what? There's our time. You have to you have to suffer the consequences of your sin. You know, it's cause and effect. And sometimes we blame God for the consequences of our sin. When God says don't do something, it's because there's a consequence. But many times we disobey God and then we go back and say, God, why are they blame God for it? He said, no, I told you not to do that. You know, it's like a child that, 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 that's, you know, that's playing out front. You, you tell them, you know, don't 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 run on the on the street. You're, you're liable to fall down. And guess what? They, they run, they, they fall down and they come up. Oh, mom, mommy, daddy, look what you did. And, you know, and they blame mom and dad for for falling down and, and getting all scratched up. And that's what we do to God. God said, no, I warned you. This is going to happen if you don't listen to me. And then we disobey and we get hurt. We come back blaming God for getting hurt. But he will allow us to suffer the consequences. And it says here in verse 8, he says, you are God forgives, but he also took vengeance on their deeds for the things they did. Forgiveness is consistent with vengeance, even though it sounds like a contradiction. But that's what this verse and many others and many facts clearly tell us. Now, to help us understand this better, that is to what seems like a contradiction, contradiction, think about this. The meaning of the words that are used, there's three. He said, notice, you answered them. Okay, verse 8, you answered them. In other words, God answered their prayers for forgiveness of the people. Moses, Aaron, Samuel had this in common, uh, that more than once they interceded with God on behalf of Israel who had sinned. And their intercession, uh, uh, Aaron, Moses, and Samuel's intercession, it was effective. They were forgiven the sins through through their prayer. But vengeance still followed. There were consequences that followed. Secondly, you were to them... God who forgives. In other other words, Lord, you forgave them. Now, what is God's forgiveness? Forgiveness isn't just removing the punishment. That can be done and it is done sometimes. But there's no forgiveness on the offender's part. In other words, the, the offender who has sinned, they can't forgive their own sins. They must seek forgiveness from God. And it's clearly said here that God did forgive their sins but he didn't take away the punishment. The word though would be better translated and, but again, it it, it doesn't change the meaning. The the, the two seemingly contrary ideas of forgiveness and vengeance, they are coupled together just the same. They go together. But they're not contrary ideas if we think about what God's forgiveness really is. Let's think about it in the context of a father's forgiveness of his child. In other words, think back when you were a child or with even your own children, if you're a parent, and how we deal with them. What makes that cute little face hang down and the tears start pouring down their face? Is it because you took the paddle to them? Or is it because they can see the sad disapproval in your face and the trouble and the scolding in your eyes? It's not just the spanking from their father that makes the punishment more than it's, than it's the frustration, the displeasure of the father's heart that makes the child's punishment. It's knowing they disappointed dad or mom. And forgiveness isn't complete when dad says, well, go back to your room, I'm not going to spank you. It's when he says, come here, I'm not mad at you, I still love you. Taking the child to the father's heart is the forgiveness. And this is God's forgiveness. It's the taking back of his sinful child into his heart again. You see, if he didn't do that, just the simple removal of the punishment, it could never comfort the heart. You know, if you, going back to your parents, you know, if they spanked you for something wrong... And yet they never forgave you or never it it, the the spanking wouldn't bring about the the, the okay of everything. Yeah, I, I can be spanked. That's fine. But dad, let me know that you still love me, that I'm still your child. That's what's being said here. The soul of man is made in such a way that it would say over and over again, I don't care about the punishment. I can't take it if I know, I I, I mean, I can take the punishment if I still know that you love me. So you see, forgiveness is putting putting away the anger from the heart of God towards the sinner. The third thing that we learn is vengeance doesn't mean revenge. I mentioned that right off the bat. Vengeance doesn't mean revenge. For example, when the state punishes a criminal, it's not an act of revenge it's the, it's done because it is the needed keeping of righteous law keeping the law is necessary for the protection of society and often for the for again for the reformation of the criminal, criminal himself you know for them to improve and for them to get better so when god allows and causes the consequences of the sinners to sin, uh, sinners sin to follow him wherever he goes and, and and it darkens his life and it causes him a lot of grief. God does it for reasons that are totally consistent with God's love that's already led him to forgive the sin and to restore the sinner back into uh, the Father's heart again, his love. The truth that the, the text in verse 8 declares notice, the truth that text uh, declares in verse 8 that prayers may be answered for forgiveness, yet vengeance still taken. The consequences still suffered. For example, Moses and Aaron were forgiven. The Lord loved them. And yet their punishment kept them out of Canaan and was never removed. They didn't get to go into Canaan. David is another example. David's sin was forgiven. A great sin. But the punishment against him was carried out. The sword never departed from his family. And it's the same thing today. How many forgiven children of God are still in weakened health? Have tarnished reputations? They're poor. They have they have weak wills. They're in habitual temptation. Uh, they're, they're they have a shortened or, or saddened life. It's because of the consequences of their former sin. And yet we never think about that. We, we I always tell people go let's let's go when somebody tells me right now and, and I know things that have transpired because i you know, we've, we've talked and we've counseled and, and they said, you know, why, why, why is this happening to me right now? Why won't, you know, what? And, and their, their question, I go, well, let's, let's not look at right. Let's go back and see what brought you to this place. There's usually a series of events, a series of choices that I made, usually wrong choices that have put me into this position. But I want to look at my situation right now and I want to get mad at God. Why, God, are you doing this to me right now? Well, wait a minute. There, like I said, there's a sequence of events, choices that I made that has placed me into this position. That's why it's so important that we seek God in the choices because you know, we can choose our choices, but then those choices choose and make us. We can, we can choose our choices, but we can't choose the results. And, and this is especially important to young people. Because you know, many times, and I remember, I was young once at a time, believe it or not. When the choices I made, they weren't about next year or five years or ten years from now. It was about the moment. I'm bored. Hey, guys, what, let, let's, let's go do this. Let's go do that. Not thinking about the consequences. And I tell you, one of the, one of the th- scariest things was, was when I was, well, not during the time I was doing the drugs. It, it didn't bother me. And I, I did LSD in my day. But I remember when I became a Christian and I wanted to have a family, I remember what they said about LSD, that it could, you know, uh, destroy some of the chromosomes in, in, in you and you could have, you know, birth defects in your children. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And that scared me. But again, back then, I wasn't thinking of marriage. I wasn't thinking of kids and family. I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. I never thought about that. But boy, I tell you what, when the time came, I was fearful. I said, and I was and I just, God, please. You know, because I thought, my children will suffer the effects of my sin. And so, Lord, I, I, you know, I pray and, th- and thank God. You know, they, I think they're normal, but... Uh, sometimes i have my doubts but anyway not really i love them to death but you know uh but man it's you know you don't think about those things when you're young because you think it's so far away and then you wake up and go where did it go here i am i remember when pastor joe talked about this when he was alive you know they'll probably gone by a bunch of young guys are all you know my age but anyway Again, we need to think about the choices that we make because they will put us in some really, you know, tough situations at times. And so again, uh, again, God will forgive us of our sin, but then you know we have to suffer the consequences. And one wrong act could cause you a lifetime of misery. One time, I remember Alan, Doctor Alan Redpath said. For 60 seconds of of pleasure, a lifetime of misery. I never forgot that quote. And it's so true. Again, they were forgiven. God's children were forgiven. But again, they experienced the consequences of their sin. But they were inflicted in love, just like we are. Okay? We're inflicted in love. And you know what? Those consequences that we receive, they, they serve a purpose. And until the ends and the purposes of those afflictions are fulfilled. How can they come to an end? God has a purpose for allowing me to experience those consequences in my life. Because there's a purpose and an end to them. But until, he is, that, until that purpose and end, those ends are completed in my life. They're not going to stop. But again, remember they're inflicted in love. Not in anger. And God's love gives us the, 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 the perseverance. To endure them until the desired goal is reached that he has planned for them. So, this might sound like another contradiction that vengeance is consistent with forgiveness. Though outwardly the penalty is continued, that is the consequences go on, the nature of it is changed. Now it's not a sign of anger, it's a means of blessing. And these sufferings really cause us to hate and mourn over our sin even more and drive us to God in prayer. It keeps us humble before God and and man. And it makes us always watchful and it gives us compassion for others who are tempted. And it enables us to glorify God through it all. And it keeps the truth of God's holy word of vengeance. If God removed all punishment when he forgave us of our sin, Hey, we think that God didn't care about sin, that we could, you know, he tolerates it. It doesn't bother him. And we definitely shouldn't think that. But the punishment will stop when it has accomplished God's purposes in your life. So in closing, here's the lessons that it teaches. Hate sin. We kind of saw that in the Beatitudes. You know, poor in spirit, mourning over your, mourning over your, your, your sin. Hate sin. Secondly, Rob sin of its power by turning to Jesus to repentance and by submitting to his will and by carefully obeying God in the future and by trusting in his grace every hour of every day. Third, fight against sin in others. And fourth, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ who makes us more than conquerors over sin. Verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for the Lord our God is holy. Because of God's wonderful mercies, we're called to worship him at his holy hill, Zion. Because the Lord our God is holy. The sight of Zion is holy. Why? Because of the presence of the Lord. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm, Lord. Thank you for your truth, Lord, your word. How wonderful it is, God. How wise it is, Lord. But again, it only does us good if we listen and we apply it, God. Lord, help us to be careful of the choices that we make, God. So that we don't blame you for our poor choices and the consequences of those choices, God. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you will allow those consequences to continue in our life, God. Father, that you have a purpose and a design for them, and that learn that we would learn from those consequences, God. The Father, that those consequences would teach us about the choices that we make, Father. Father, just one wrong choice, God, a lifetime of misery, a lifetime of unhappiness, God. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you're, you, can, you can relate to the, a lifetime of, of misery or, or you're experiencing something right now because of choices that you've made. But God can give you back the years, the Bible says, that the canker worm has eaten. He can give you a fresh start, a new start. He can wipe your slate clean. He can remove all the sins of the past, no matter how great, no matter how many, no matter how dark. That's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the cross. God's word says that that if we confess our sins, he is able to forgive us all of our sins. And his blood cleanses us of all of our sins. And all means all. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if God has touched your heart, and you recognize your need for him and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer.